according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Matthew 17 as we get started this morning. Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. 24 through 27. We're going to see Jesus pay his taxes. Episode 52 in the Galilean ministry. We are coming to the end of the Galilean ministry. And uh, really just a, a few of these events coming up, the most significant of which is the passage in John chapter 7 that centers on the Feast of Tabernacles where the brothers of Jesus are trying to encourage him to go up to Jerusalem and to make a big splash and to expand his ministry. Now, none of them are saved. They're all unbelievers, but they got the idea of how to uh, help him in his ministry. See, it's always interesting. Everybody else has these great ideas about what you need to do in, uh, in your life. Well, we'll deal with that. That's uh, really the last substantial episode that will take multiple weeks to cover. I think a lot of these are, are one-week shots. Last week we were in episode 51, uh, the, the discussion on the death and resurrection, um, three points of study, and we knocked it out in a single session. I think this one as well. Pay your taxes, all right? What else can I say? You know, well, there's six points of study. Actually, we're gonna we'll we'll get to, into some of the uh, the isagogics of this passage, the history and the economics involved. But uh, truly, there's there's more. Uh, questions and answers in some of the details and we're just going to have to let it go we'll have six points of study and we will wrap up episode 52 then we'll move on to episode 53 disciples contend about greatness and you just you wonder how much hair the lord had left by the time he went to the cross because he must have been pulling out his hair left and right in frustration with these disciples He's, he's trying to tell them again and again and again, he's going to die, he's going to go on the cross, and, and, and all they're doing is arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. See, So that's what we had to deal with in uh, the next chapter, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 35, is uh, I think the longest section on it. There are parallels in both Mark and Luke, and uh, we're going to have to spend some time on it. And this is the text that includes the passage on the 90 and 9 how he leaves the 90 and 9 to go find the 1, and uh, shepherding principles that can be found in that chapter are, uh, are very important. All right, but for this morning, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. Before we begin our study, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, this day is a testimony to your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. And here it is again today. New mercies are unfolding. And we thank you for the grace provision for a local church assembly. We thank you for the Word of God and the privilege and blessing that it is to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We pray this morning for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, for concentration upon the truth of your Word. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's read through the verses here. We only have one gospel to look at. This uh, event is not found in Mark, Luke, or John, but the tax collector has a story for us about taxes. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. 
And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes, uh, from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. All right. Shekel's an unfortunate translation there. It's not a shekel. It's a stator. But well, that's an interpretive decision that the Lachman Foundation made in, uh, in rendering that passage. We'll talk about it. Point one, six things I want you to get out of this. And uh, some subpoints on, on two of them. Point one, this episode is unique to the narrative of Matthew, the tax collector. This episode is unique to the narrative of Matthew, the tax collector. Not found in Mark, Luke, or John. Unique to the Gospel of Matthew. The narrative of Matthew, the tax collector. Now, I'm giving you the vocabulary for a tax collector for a reason. A tax collector is a telones. Ha, telones. T-E-L-O-N-E-S, tax collector. This is sometimes referred to as a tax. This passage here references the two drachma, the didrachma payment, as a tax. You will notice, though, in reading the New American Standard, at least, and I think a number of the other modern English translations, the word tax is in italics. All right? And there's a question as to whether we should even think of it as a tax at all. Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Okay? And this is a helping word that the translators put in there to try to complete the idea of two drachma. It's kind of left hanging if we just say, uh, you know, does your teacher not pay the two drachma? Okay? It'd be like us saying, did you not pay the six dollar well, the $6 what? <laughs> you know, the $6 fee, the $6 tax, the $6 uh, surcharge, the $6 what? You know, $6. We don't like to leave that hanging in English, okay? Greek has no problem leaving things hanging. Uh, in fact, they leave a lot of things hanging. So translators then have to do what they can to put the helping words in there to supply it to finish the thought. And I suppose tax is just as fine as any. You could put fee or uh, charge, any, any item there, uh, depending on what it's used for. If it's used for governmental purposes, tax is a great word. If it's used for the temple, which is most likely this is the temple, the annual temple tax, uh, you can still use tax or you might prefer contribution, offering, and so forth. A little bit awkward for us because we live in the age of grace and we're not accustomed to our grace gifts and support of the ministry being thought of as a tax. All right. When we don't live under the have tos in grace, we live under the want tos. In any event, it is a tax collector who's telling us this story. It is a telonis that's telling us this story. Matthew is the tax collector. He is the disciple who was by profession a, a traitor to his race and his nation. He, uh, the tax collectors, worked on behalf of the Roman government. The occupying government used these guys to collect their tribute, their taxes, their, their uh, blood money from their subjugated peoples. Okay? 
Now here again, we're a bit alien from this. We've, we're, we're prosperous 21st century American people. We've never lived in a situation where we were citizens of one country but expected to pay tribute to another country. All right. As the Jewish people paid annual tribute to the Romans for uh, the permission to, uh, to be subjugated by the Romans. All right. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a payment that you gladly make when you have to. <laughs> you you pay the tribute when you have to, when the only other alternative is is death, you know, to be obliterated and replaced. Then uh, then you pay the tribute. Now, I give you the vocabulary for Talones because it's 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 uh, important to understand the author of this text. Matthew is a Talones, but we don't have it anywhere in our passage. There are no Taloni in this passage. The, the noun does not occur and the concept does not occur. These collectors, these didrachma collectors, are not taloni. The term is never used of these guys. They are collectors. All right. Bagmen, if you want to think of them as that. I'm calling them didrachma receivers. All right. The reason why I'm calling them that is because that's what they're doing. This is a case where a title... Is, uh, is created on the basis of behavior. What are these guys? They are didrachma receivers. Now, the two drachma tax, the two drachma, as it's rendered here, it's hyphenated with a number two. Uh, the Greek word is, is didrachma. It's a, it's a compound word. So two drachma is, is a pretty good rendering. It's a literal rendering. Or you can call it didrachma. The Greek wouldn't use a long I sound. It would use a shorter I sound, didrachma, the accent on the first syllable. But being that we're living in Texas, we'll go ahead and call them didrachma receivers. All right. Uh, the participle lambanantis. This is a present active participle, and it describes their activity. Uh, lambano is to take or to receive, to obtain possession of. And I, I highlight it because it's different from a telones. Ma- Matthew was a tax collector, a, a governmental bureaucrat, all right, a servant of the Roman government. Uh, these guys are not government agents. These guys do not represent a government agency. This is not in support of anything political, so far as we understand it. And again, it's a little bit of speculation here. But this didrachma fee, the didrachma contribution, was the annual support for the temple. All right. And uh, the question about it was not mandatory. It was not a mandatory tax stipulated by the Roman government. It was entirely voluntary. And yet uh, there are certain things that are voluntary, kind of, sort of. They're voluntary with a lot of uh, pressure. Like when your employer um, comes alongside at a particular time of year to let it be known that the company really, really, really wants to have a, a uh, successful um, effort at the, uh, uh, you know, they have these things every year. United Way Fund, that's right, yeah. United Way uh, fundraising thing they do every year, right? And every year, of course, it's voluntary. It's all voluntary. You don't have to contribute. You know, it's just... The whole shift knows that you're the biggest cheapskate when you don't because of the peer pressure involved and the different things that happen. So, 
You understand, this is the way the world works. This is the voluntary, not so voluntary, voluntary tax that gets paid. All right. It's like when you fill out your income tax, you can check this box if you want to contribute a dollar to the uh, election campaign, whatever that thing is. Right. I never check it. I, I, th I think it's stupid. I'm paying enough taxes. Why would I want to add an extra dollar on top, you know? I don't mind. I was a waiter. I'll give a waiter a good tip any day of the week, but I'm not going to tip the government an extra dollar. They don't deserve it. All right. Being careful, of course, because my recorded voice is on the Internet and the IRS might be listening. But these guys are didrachma receivers. Okay? They're, uh, they're the, the, the money men, the bag men for the racket, the extortion racket that goes city by city by city. Now... There is some question. I'll give you the, the possibilities. If it's not the temple tax, uh, we're kind of left befuddled. We don't know exactly what it is, but it is an expected two drachma fee that uh, gets paid at some kind of interval. And we'll examine that here as well. Now, the drachma receivers, thirdly, what do we notice? The drachma receivers ask Peter. They don't go to Jesus. They go to Peter. And they asked Peter if Jesus paid the didrachma. And it's a weird word for paid. It's not the normal word. It's, it's, it's really, this whole paragraph is filled with puzzles, language puzzles. I mean, the term didrachma only occurs here in the New Testament. Uh, the combination here with the participle lumbinantis, that's a little bit unusual. They're not teloni, they're not tax collectors, they're money receivers, cashiers, or, or uh, some sort. And this vocabulary of teleo, using teleo, now what's well within teleo's range, teleo is a completion verb. Teleo means to complete, like telos or tetelestai, it is finished. All right? <coughs> and you can use teleo in a payment way. It's possible to use teleo in a payment way. We've got a lot of terms like that in English that you can utilize in a, uh, in a uh, financial transaction, right? But it's not common to do so. We don't normally think of it in a financial sense. Normally the words are used in another sense, okay? And as a matter of fact, Peter, uh, Matthew is the only gospel that uses teleo in a financial way, uses teleo in a payment kind of way. Mark and Luke don't. It's uh, a little bit characteristic of his mind as a, as a tax collector, as a, somebody who participates in financial dealings. So the didrachma receivers asked Peter if Jesus paid, that is, he was in the habit of paying, present tense, does your teacher not pay? That's an ongoing statement. Does he not pay? Present time. Is this his practice? Is this his custom? Does he not pay this fee with whatever frequency and whatever renewal uh, period that, that takes place? Peter stated that Jesus did indeed participate in the activity they were concerned about. His answer is a very quick yes. Of course he does. Now, knowing Peter as we do, we've come to know Peter, I think, in recent classes, uh, Peter, it's not unusual for Peter to go ahead and just speak first and then think later, right? Answer the question and then go find out what's really going on. 
But he sure has a real quick answer here. He says, yes. And then he runs right into the house. <laughs> right? But before he can even open his mouth, the Lord's got some teaching for him. And this is where it comes down to. Uh, in so many of these instances, Jesus Christ utilizes the, the conditional circumstances that they were surrounded by. And he uses those conditional circumstances to be able to teach doctrine. See, for instance, when his mother and his brothers come in and then try to interrupt a Bible, they weren't really trying to interrupt a Bible class. They were waiting outside. They sent word in, either a messenger or a note or something. Anyway, they were very discreet about it. They sent word in that they were out there waiting for him, and they were out there waiting for him. And they weren't intending that they interrupt what he was doing, or they didn't want him to quit early or whatever. They just wanted him to know that they were there. And when he was done teaching, then they were going to do whatever they were going to do. We don't know what they were going to do. All right. And he, Jesus used that episode. You're familiar with the episode I'm talking about? Jesus used that episode to teach a principle about our new family in Christ. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says, is it not those who do the will of the Father? Is it not you? And he used that opportunity to be instructive. He does the same thing here. And these the drachma collectors, these United Way uh, fundraisers, they... Uh, they're, they're putting the screws here to tightening the screws, the thumb screws, I guess you call that, to uh, Peter. And uh, the Lord's going to use that. He says, you know what, let's, let's teach some doctrine here. There's a concept here. In fact, I think Jesus was having a little private chuckle over the whole thing. When he, when he uses the kings of this earth as his illustration, he says, you don't tax your own family. You know, when, you, when you're raising a poll tax, when you're charging, when, you're charging uh, when you levy a tariff on an import, do you go ahead and charge your own uh, domestic producers also? No. That kind of defeats the purpose, right? If you if you're going to if you're going to uh levy a tariff on on a on a import of whatever commodity, whatever type, that's what it is. You don't you don't levy the same tariff on a domestic producer of that commodity. So, it's kind of nonsensical to expect him to pay what they're asking him to pay. Because, and it's nonsensical for Peter to pay, too, when it comes down to it. All right. Now, what is this tax under point four? The didrachma tax in Capernaum is of an uncertain nature. I'm just going to be honest. Because I'm not convinced. Uh, the the um, commentaries... They all point to the, and we'll go back to Exodus and we'll look at it. The commentaries all point to the temple tax. And, and I think it's consistent with that, but it's not locked in 100%. And I think there's some, there's some unanswered questions. And so I'm at least honest enough to say, well, you know, it's, it's most likely, but we're not entirely certain. Whatever it was, Jesus knew what it was. Peter knew what it was. These collectors knew what it was. And the real issue is not the taxes he paid or the, the miracle fish that he caught that happened to have a coin in the mouth. All right. The issue was, was that sons are exempt. And yet, Jesus chose to not exercise a privilege that he would otherwise be entitled to. When you lay aside a privilege, you are Christ-like. When you lay aside a privilege, you are um, illustrating humility. When you lay aside a claim to um, recompense, you're applying forgiveness. 
We'll talk about some of these things here as well. Now, what was a didrachma? We keep talking about it. It's a compound word. Drachma was the basic Greek coin. The didrachma was a two was a, a double value coin. And it was equal to the Roman denarius. The standard Roman coin was the denarius. The drachma was a Greek coin. By this point in time, the Romans had replaced the Greeks politically, militarily. But economically, the uh, drachmas were still in considerable circulation as the medium of exchange, uh, particularly amongst the Hellenistic world. A denarius represented one day's pay for the common laborer. You worked, you worked a full day, you could expect a denarius. That was the means of exchange. Now, there were other coins as well. There were Greek coins, Roman coins. There were even some Jewish coins in circulation. Some Jewish uh, pennies, the mite that the widow contributed, for example, was a Jewish coin. Beyond the drachma, there was another coin called a stater. S-T-A-T-E-R. And I bring it up because it's in this text. The stater is what was in the fish's mouth. The silver stater was also known as a tetradrachma. What do you think a tetradrachma is? Four. That's right. Die is two. Tetra is four. All right. You ever played Tetris? Oh, okay, it's a goofy computer game. Um, actually, it's a highly addictive computer game. If you can, <laughs> you can you can play Tetris for hours and hours. I see somebody nodding back there. They know what I'm talking about. Well, Tetra means four. Pente means five. Pente is a board game I like too. Uh, anyway, so a tetradrachma, but it was most commonly called a stator, and that's what's in our text. And then another item called the mina. The mina was equal to 100 drachma. All right. A little bit of your currency for you under sub-point A. From point B, the annual Jewish temple tax would be an equal amount. The annual Jewish temple tax, the Jews were expected to pay a half shekel every year. And it so happens that a half shekel equals a didrachma. Okay. And this, of course, produces the conclusion that this didrachma collection in Capernaum was the annual temple tax. Okay? So under point B, the annual Jewish temple tax would be an equal amount because one didrachma equals a half shekel. The, the Jewish temple tax was half shekel for each adult male. We'll look at that. We'll turn to Exodus here in a moment. But there's some problems still. We're talking about the fall. We're approaching the Feast of Tabernacles. We're in the late summer, early fall here. And that's not when the, the temple tax was collected. The temple tax was collected in the month Adar, in the month before Passover. Passover was in the month Nisan. The temple tax was collected the month before. So the timing is wrong. The timing is about six months off, six months late. However, the Lord has been traveling. He's been to Phoenicia. He's been to the eastern side of the Galilee. He's been around. It may be that for the last six months, he has not been in a place where he could pay that tax. It might be that these collectors are grabbing Peter the first chance they've got uh, with uh, this didrachma fee that's overdue. So the timing, I think, is a problem. I think the location 
The fact that this is Capernaum is a problem. Not being consistent with a temple tax. Although there is a lot of speculation that temple officials actually set up tables and chests in the major cities around throughout Israel. So it's not, it's not necessary that the tax had to be paid at the temple in Jerusalem. It's possible. There were years where they would set up collection tables in various cities around. So it's possible that Capernaum had a table established for paying the didrachma tax or paying the temple tax, the half-shekel tax. That's possible. But would they have that table set up in September when the announcements were to go throughout the kingdom in the month prior to Passover? Anyway, I give these to you because I think there is still substantial question to where I'm not confident just saying, you know, put a gun to my head and say, was this the annual temple tax? I'm not going to say that. All right, let's look back to Exodus 30. And we'll see the origins of this. It's kind of interesting to see how does a tax begin and does it ever end? Now, we have instructions in this chapter about the uh, atonement once a year and things there that come to an end in verse 10. Once a year, throughout your generations, once a year, okay? So this, this chapter has no problem explaining anything once a year if it's supposed to happen once a year. It uses a phrase like once a year, okay? You see that there in verse 10? Once a year, okay? That's the atonement. Now, in verse 11, the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. So how often was this to take place? It doesn't say. It doesn't say that it's going to be once a year or once a decade, or once a generation. When the Lord ordered the census, when did he order the census? He ordered the census when they left Egypt, and he ordered a second census in the next generation. See? And so it would make sense that... Sense, census. It would make sense that you're not going to take this census every single year. Right? How often, you know, we do census every 10 years, right? Every, in the United States and whatever. But, you know, that's not generational. So when you take a census of the sons of Israel, and he doesn't say thou shalt do so every 10 years or 20 years or whatever. It's just when you do. All right. I don't think David was necessarily wrong intrinsically for the census he took. It was the motivation for why he took the census. Because at the instigation of the adversary, he was taking it to boast about how large his military was. And he, uh, there's no indication that he was uh, taking that census for godly reasons or to raise a contribution to the support of the Lord, such as we see described here. All right, so when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. See, the purpose for 
the census is not to brag about how numerous they were, or how mighty they were, or how they compared to the nations around them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Okay, These weren't the cheap shekels either. The shekel is 20 geras, in case you were curious. Okay, Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over. Now, why is that significant? Again, we're talking about Exodus here. We're talking about the census they took when they came out of Egypt. And then the following census that they took when the Exodus generation died, except for Caleb and Joshua, Exodus generation died. The next generation, now the wilderness generation, was prepared to enter into the land. So you're dealing with two different censuses nearly 40 years apart. Two different generations. Now, are you going to do this every year? And, uh, you know, you might call this the birthday tax. Turn 20 and you start paying this half shekel every year. Or two didrachmas. Or one day's pay, a denarius. Okay, so for, if you're 20 and up every year, uh, however many days a year you work, one of those days' salary has to go to the temple. If this is designed to be an annual tax. See, nothing in this passage says you're going to do this every year. It got that way later on. Okay, It became an annual temple tax during the Maccabean era between the Old Testament and New Testament. All right. Um, verse 15. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. So the graduated tax idea is alien to this activity here. Okay. Each one is a ransom to the Lord. Each one belongs to the Lord. Each one is a member of the nation of Israel, a covenant people that belongs to Jehovah. And so their ransom is no more and no less. If you consider the shadow doctrines in terms of what that represents, see, consider how we were ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with precious blood, the, the blood of the Lamb. Each one of us was ram ransomed, and I, I don't want to burst your bubble or anything, but your ransom price was exactly the same as mine, exactly the same as everybody else's. Okay? I think there's a pride attitude. Some people think that, well, you know, he didn't have to work so hard to save me because I, was, I, was, I wasn't that sinful. Right? I'm a pretty good person. Now, this other person, man, you talk about a total heathen. Goodness. No, no, there's no, no variation. It is a flat fee redemption price. Ransom price, ransom payment. So the rich don't pay more, the poor don't pay less. It's a half shekel for each uh, each person over uh, 20, although it could be debated that it was for the men only, as opposed to every man or woman over 20. Uh, verse 16, you shall make the atonement money, or I'm sorry, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So here's what they did. They took this census idea that started the paragraph. They spotted the words atonement in verses 15 and 16 and they said, aha, we better do this every year because we have to do the atonement every year. All right. And that's where they took the concept and made it an annual census and an annual tax. 
Now, again, is this didrachma that they're gathering in Capernaum? Is it the same? Um, maybe it is, maybe it's not. And I don't think it's really the issue in the passage anyway. When you read secular Greek, we do find reference, point C, secular writers do reference a didrachma tax in support of the temple of Sukus. The Greek Sukus, or the Egyptian Sekos, I think. He was a crocodile god in, in Egypt. He was like a, like a minotaur. He had the body of a man, but the head of a crocodile. Anyway, the uh, crocodile temple there in Egypt. Uh, there's even a town. They, the, in later years, the, the town became known as Crocodilopolis or something like that. Crocodile, yeah, Crocodilopolis was the name of the town. And we've got some papyri in the first century that reference this tax was still being collected to support the uh, crocodile idols in uh, Crocodilopolis. Is that fun? Crocodilopolis? It's just a fun word to say. Crocodilopolis? <laughs> when I was in junior high, there was a girl named, her last name was Polychronopolis. Yeah, I'll never forget her my whole life. I'll never forget Maria Felitza Polychronopolis. And she had a sister who was my sister's age, three grades below our grade. And uh, she had the same name and it was just reversed. The older sister was Maria Felitza Polychronopolis. The younger sister was Felitza Maria Polychronopolis. And I don't know, I hope she grew up and married some guy named Smith or something with a, you know, a short name. Goodness, he, you live all your life with 16 letters in your last name. What do you do? So, um, anyway, the idea of a didrachma tax that supports liturgical operations in a temple is another consistency with this didrachma fee being in support of the Jewish temple. So, the uh, the amount matches up. The, the The amount the law stipulates is half a shekel. And the amount in uh, the didrachma in Matthew is the equivalent of half a shekel. So the numbers match up, which is a good thing. Particularly since 1,500 years have gone by. There's no inflation in 1,500 years. What a, what a treat. <laughs> well, the Lord said, half a shekel. All right. Point uh, five. Now, Jesus spoke to Peter before Peter even mentioned anything. In verse 25, Peter comes into the house and I think just by the term that's used here, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus preempted. He, he interrupted. It's like he was walking in with his mouth open. Standard for Peter. And, you know, normally it's to prepare for the foot insertion. But he walks in and he's ready. He's going to ask this question. He's going to say, oh, did you forget to pay the didrachma last fall, last spring? <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things. You think I got paid. You thought I did. I slipped my mind. I thought I got paid. I thought my wife took care of that. She thought I took care of it. Neither one of us did. What do you know? Okay. So it's like Peter, he's he's out there with the the collector saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He pays that. We pay that, of course. See, what we don't realize yet is Peter hadn't paid his either. Right? 
They came to Peter to say, does your teacher not pay this? Oh, yes, he does. But Peter hadn't paid either. We find that out when he says, you know, go catch this fish, take the shekel out, and you can pay for you and me. Right? Peter also was in arrears in terms of this tax. So Jesus spoke to Peter before Peter even mentioned anything. Now, Jesus is going to use common knowledge regarding the world system in order to illustrate the irony in asking the son to pay the didrachma. He uses common knowledge. He says, what do you think, Simon? Now, interesting the switch from Peter to Simon there, by the way. They they go to Peter. But when uh, the Lord's talking to him in private, he calls him Simon. That's his native Hebrew name, and that's the, the personal name, the name that a close friend would call you by. It's not your Greek name. It's not your professional name. He calls him Simon. From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? You know, it'd be like today. It's a holiday weekend coming up and a lot of people on the roads, a lot of people traveling. What do you think? When DPS is on the highway running radar and giving out tickets, who do they like getting more? Texas plates or out-of-state plates? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. If you were driven cross-country or driven different state plates in different states, you, you know what I'm talking about. Out-of-state plates, absolutely. That's, that's, a, that's a choice target right there. Because that's bringing revenue into the state from outside of the state, right? And it's not getting Texas residents upset at Texas uh, DPS officers. So, yeah, you grab an out-of-state plate every chance you get. Why did you know that? Was there anyone that disagreed with that? Is it unanimous? Common knowledge? Okay. I think you can use just common knowledge of of the way the world works as an illustration, particularly if you're trying to draw a distinction between how the world works and how God works. All right. He talks about later on, they're going to be arguing about who is the greatest. And he says, you know what? The sons of this age, they, they lord it over one another. They love to get ahead and step on others. And Jesus says, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to have the servant mentality. We're going to serve one another. And the servant will be the greatest. So if we can use common knowledge regarding the world system to illustrate doctrine, I think it's a, uh, it's a fruitful exercise. And the Lord does that. And he's illustrating here irony. Asking the son to pay the didrachma. Especially, I think it's applicable in any situation, but if this is the temple tax, well, whose house is that? It's his father's house. Because you're making my father's house a house of merchandise. And then you're going to tax the son. Right? I mean, like paying yourself rent for your own house or something. Or evicting yourself for not paying the rent. What would you... It's your house. You belong here. So he has this message and he gets the answer right, the right answer from Peter. And he says, all right, well, now that you understand the doctrine, now that you've enjoyed the humor in the situation, let's go ahead and pay the tax so we don't be a stumbling block. Because you and I have capacity here to laugh over the whole thing. 
But we don't want to be a stumbling block. It's kind of like when the world hates you and the world abuses you. And you get all this mistreatment, but you've got the divine viewpoint to say, okay, oh well. He who sits in the heavens laughs, that's what it is. The world doesn't understand why you're not reacting to their, to their uh, mock and their scorn and their ridicule. You've got to be careful because you don't want to mock them right back. You've got the capacity to say, okay, well, divine viewpoint, you hate Christ, so you hate me, and there's, that's the way it works. But you don't want to be a stumbling block to them. And Jesus says here, we're, we're going to pay this fee. We're going to pay what we don't have to. We're going to go the extra mile. He's laying aside a privilege, not exercising a right that he would otherwise be entitled to. And this becomes the, the essential essence of Philippians 2, the kenosis. He laid aside his privileges. He doesn't exercise what he could otherwise exercise. He doesn't claim what he could otherwise claim. That's a, that's a constant behind forgiveness, too. You have a claim for recompense. You've been hurt. Somebody's done you dirt. And you have an expectation of recompense. He, somebody owes me something, or I'm going to get it back, or something, you know, I'm going to pay back, or whatever else. But you know what? When you can release any claim of recompense, that's the definition of forgiveness. Say, you know what? Vengeance is the Lord's. He deals with that. That's forgiveness. So, the Lord uses this opportunity. Now, worldly kings collect customs or poll taxes from foreigners and not from sons. More of the unique, unique vocabulary here. Both of these terms. Tele is the customs. You have two terms in verse 25. You've got customs and poll taxes. From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? A custom is a tele. It's a noun, feminine noun, related to the verb teleo that we had a moment ago. And the poll tax is a kinson, K-E-N-S-O-N. If I could write it up here, I would spell it out. But the K, the kappa, in Latin, actually, this isn't even a Greek word. Kinsos? It's not even a Greek word. It's a loan word. It was borrowed by the Greeks, but it comes from the Latin. It's a Latin loan word in our Greek New Testament. There are a handful of those, as the cultures and the languages coincided for several years. It's usually the other direction. There are a tremendous amount of Greek words that were brought into Latin that are, Latin, that are Greek loan words in Latin. This is the other direction, though. This is a Latin loan word into Greek. A kinson. The nominative would be kinsos. K-E-N-S-O-S. The Latins didn't have a K. And the uh, Greeks didn't have a C. But the Latin term starts with a C. C-E-N-S-U-S. Census. This is where we get our word census. This is the English word census. Comes from the Latin. And this word, this Greek word, kinsos. Comes from the same Latin word. So... When the, when the earthly kings, when the worldly kings collect their customs, their tele, or their, uh, which relates to the finished product, the finish, the end, they collect their customs uh, and they collect their poll taxes, their census taxes, who do they collect it from? All right. 
Sons are free from tariffs and duties. Sons are free from tariffs and duties. And Peter confessed that. And the Lord said, you're right. You know, a nation that wants to protect their own industry may levy these. In fact, go back to the... Do you ever read the uh, the Federalist Papers? Do you ever read the, the writings of the Founding Fathers? And they were, uh, they were very uh, concerned about... Uh, their population and their industry base, and what would happen if uh, if England, for example, who was still very uh, uh, the British were pretty sore losers. They didn't like losing their colonies, and and they had an out of whack taxation system to begin with, which is why we revolted. Okay, but the idea of flooding our markets with their subsidized products was a danger to our economy, and so the idea if you can uh, slap a tariff on it. It raises the price. Not only does it raise the price, but it also brings in revenue to your to your government. And by raising the price, then it makes your own domestically produced product more competitive. And it's attractive then for the products that you're trying to grow and so forth. So yeah, you don't if you've got a if you've got a tariff on the import of uh, steel, for example. And so any steel that comes from other countries into this country has a tariff attached to it, an extra fee, an extra tax that puts the price of that higher. And it is a benefit and an incentive for the American steel industry and the, the production, the domestic production of steel and, and all the rest. Okay, Or any product, doesn't have to be steel, any product. That's the concept. You wouldn't then say, oh, well, here's a tariff that we charge to foreigners. Let's go ahead and charge it to the domestic producers, too. You wouldn't do that. That defeats the point of the exercise, defeats the point of the tariff. All right. By the way, this is how the federal government was funded in the early days of our republic. There was no income tax. How did our, what was our federal government funded by? It was funded by... Tariffs and duties. Anyway, just read James Madison. Read Alexander Hamilton. Read um, um, George Mason. And a lot of these products are now available for the Logos Bible software. Just uh, in the last month, the, uh, the uh, Wall Builders collection, the David Barton collection, became a Logos product. And now you can read so many of these things that are available now in the, within the Logos Bible software. So we got the concept of it here. Point uh, six. Jesus provides instructions by which Peter can pay for two. Jesus provides instructions by which Peter can pay for two. And again, I'm not wrapped up in the miracle. How did Jesus know that there was a fish out there that had swallowed a stator? Okay. Well, he's a prophet. That's right. It's not omniscience. The Father and his sovereignty arranged for that fish, that fish, at that time, or however many days ahead of this, the fish did it, but the fish swallowed a stator at some point. Is that hard to believe? You know, like, look at look what swallowed Jonah. I mean, you know, this is easier than swallowing a prophet. Just swallow a coin, okay? And then hang around, be ready for that hook to go in. The Father's got all this in control, see? Am I worried about how we're going to find two acres of land and build a church building? No, I'm just going to go fishing next weekend and we're going to, <laughs> we're going to pull up a fish. 
Believe it or not, there are journal articles that have been written trying to figure out what kind of fish this was. Was it catfish? Was it a... a well, there's three or four leading suspected candidates for what kind of fish this was. Who cares? I will tell you, though, the term hook here, this is, there's a lot of fishing in the Bible. There's a lot of fishing in the Gospels. Most of the disciples were fishermen. This is the only time a hook is used for fishing. Typically, the disciples, their fishing business, were, were used, they used nets. Commercial fishermen that used these vast nets behind the boats and the cooperation of the different boats in the fleet, they had net fishing operations for their commercial fishing. This is, this is just a single hook and line. This is just an amateur fisherman out there on, a, on the dock or out there on the shore throwing a hook in. And uh, there's a fish that's going to jump at the, at the hook. don't know what kind of bait they used, but anyway, throw in the hook. See, who's in charge? I think it's interesting. And, and probably, if I, well, we'll find out when we get to heaven. I, my suspicion is that uh, uh, for the last three years or whatever, uh, the Lord paid this, and he paid for him and himself and Peter. I think chances are the Lord paid this every year for him and Peter. Just for this one particular year, they were traveling, and he didn't get the payment made. They come back into town, and these collectors go to Peter to say, Hey, doesn't your Lord pay this drachma tax? So Peter goes into the house real quick to say, ah, If Jesus didn't pay it, then I'm not covered either. <laughs> right? And so the Lord, and you wonder, did Jesus do this every year? Jesus go out there to the beach with a hook and grab a fish? Pulled a stater out every single year, paid the didrachma tax for both of them? And it just so happened this year he didn't get to it. So he said, all right, tell you what, Peter, here's my little secret. Go get your fishing pole, get a hook, go down there. There's a fish waiting for you. I, you know, I, I'm wondering if, if Jesus did this every single year, I'm thinking. Until this year when he finally let in Peter on the secret and said, okay, Peter, go, go get the tax money. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? All right, we'll find out. Bible and Spade is a uh, is a archaeological journal, and uh, Volume Ten, which was the 1997 edition, was an annual publication. In Volume Ten, they had a story in there that that uh, described uh, a find. They found a cache of coins on Mount Carmel, and it was quite a quite a haul. In fact, it was a real treasure for the uh, archaeologists to discover. You learn a lot when you find these coins. And so I'll read from this article and then you'll be dismissed for the day. <clears throat> this is page 82 in the 1997 edition of Bible in Spain. During the second temple period, remember the second temple, Solomon was the first temple. They came back from captivity and Ezra built the second temple. During the second temple period, the temple institution collected a half shekel tax annually. This tax was designated for the daily and Shabbat festival sacrifices, their libations, the omer, the two loaves of bread, the showbread, the communal sacrifices, and other needs of the temple. And if you want to read about the Mishnah, you can read that there in the Mishnah, in the Shekelim section. The rabbis linked the annual half-shekel tax to the half-shekel offering of the Pentateuch. In other words, they liked the tax, so they used the verse in Exodus 30 to validate this tax. Okay? But note, it was a feature of the second temple. Why didn't they use this tax in the first temple? if it really was all that biblical. The half shekel was mentioned in Exodus 30. We read that. There seems to be hints in the Bible that this tax became a permanent institution during the first temple period, but there are only hints. Uh, Joash in 2 Kings, Josiah, again, 2 Kings, 
the one-third shekel seems to be the Persian equivalent of the half shekel. And that's why the reference in Nehemiah is to the third of a shekel. But there again, you're dealing with currency exchange. And this, by the way, is how they got rich, making money off the currency exchange. Because the only shekel they would accept was the half shekel of the sanctuary, the one that was the hefty shekel, not the cheap one. All right. And so these travelers coming in from all over the world, they, they show up with their, their dollars and their pounds and their Deutschmarks, right? And they've got to exchange them for the temple shekels. And so the Pharisees were all too willing to make that exchange for you. And of course, they collect their percentage along the way. Big money business. Josephus records, he's the first century Jewish historian. Jewish by birth, Pharisee by training, Roman general by uh, career success. He was a Roman general in the Roman legions. But he was a Pharisee by religious training, Jewish by racial background. Uh, Josephus understood the temple tax to be the same as the one decreed by Moses in the wilderness. So he, he bought into the Pharisees' tradition that, that the uh, second temple half-shekel tax was a fulfillment of Exodus 30. Well, what do you expect? He's a Pharisee. A warning was given on the first day of Adar. Now, this is what I'm talking about. It's the wrong month for our Matthew 17 context. A warning was given on the first day of Adar, around the month of March, that the half-shekel was due. If you want to read from the Mishnah, you can get the reference on that. On the 15th of the month, the tables were set up in the provinces in order to collect the tax. So they would set up tables in various regions. And Capernaum, likely as a major city, would have had a table set up. But in the month of Adar, they would have had a table set up. Would they have had a, a table set up in Matthew 17? Okay. The uh, archaeological journal had some artwork there and some illustrations of the Tyrian shekel. Became the gold standard. Became the trustworthy um, shekel. It came from Tyre. The temple shekel was not even Jewish. It came from Tyre. It was Phoenician. But it was trustworthy and reliable. The Romans didn't exactly let the Jews go ahead and set up their own mint in Jerusalem. So this is what they did, what they could with what they had. One might assume, since Capernaum was a major Jewish center in Galilee, that one of the tables was in that city. And I think it's natural. But in the month of Adar. By the 25th of Adar, the tables were set up in the temple. And that's getting ready for the pilgrimage that would come in in the month Nisan. If one chose to pay the tax in the temple, there were 13 shofar chests in the temple court, which were used to collect different offerings. One was inscribed new shekel dues, which was for that year. Another was inscri inscribed old shekel dues in order to collect the tax from the previous year if it had not been paid. See, they, they were commanded to go every year, but let's face it, a lot of folks couldn't. Couldn't just pack up and make the trip every single year. So they'd go every other year. They'd go when they could. They'd try to pay their back taxes if they were devout with it. Every Jewish male, 20 years and up, okay, women were not subject to this tax. We, we showed in Exodus how it was up for debate whether it was people or, or males. He was to pay the tax either in his province or in the temple in Jerusalem. Either way, the tax was always paid in the Tyrian coinage, that picture up above there, even spelled out in the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud stipulated it must be the Tyrian coinage. These coins averaged 14.2 grams in weight were minted with good silver. This author named Leo Cadman, and I tried to find the text, and I was unable to do so. I still would like to someday. 
Leo Cadman described an important discovery relating these Tyrian shekels, and he writes about this hoard that was found in the spring of 1960. A hoard, I think I used the word cash. Yeah, a cache of silver coins, okay. A hoard of about 4,500 ancient silver coins was discovered near Isphia on Mount Carmel. Isphia is the Arabic name. 3,400 of the coins were Tyrian shekels, and about 1,000 were half shekels. 160 were Roman denarii, that's the plural of denarius, uh, the Roman denarii of Augustus. The shekels and half shekels are dated from 40 B.C. to 52 or 53 C.E., Christian era. I hate that dating system. A.D., 52 A.D. The bulk of them from 20 to 53 A.D., in the middle of the first century. Now, there was only one purpose for which the exclusive use of Tyrian shekels was prescribed, and that was this temple dues tax. It was the only thing where you would need that massive quantity of these Tyrian shekels. The uh, temple dues of half a shekel, which made e- which every male Jew of 20 years of age and above had to pay yearly to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the archaeologists said, well, wait a minute. These numbers don't add up. The disproportion between the 3,400 shekels and the 1,000 half shekels is to be understood from the prescription in the Mishnah that each payment of a half shekel for one person was liable to an agio, or a surcharge. A little bit of an interest fee. Okay? A 4% to 8%. While the payment of a full shekel for two persons was exempt from the agio. Say, so why do you think Jesus said, here, take this and pay for us both? Yeah, I think he avoided the, the agio payment. He avoided the the extra surcharge. Isn't that a neat picture? The uh, 160 denarii exactly represents the agio of 8% on the 1,000 half shekel that were found in that hoard. It matched up perfectly. The hoard of coins is probably from a community of 30,000 Jews living in Phoenicia. The coins were most likely hidden on Mount Carmel when the caravans realized they could not make it to Jerusalem in May of AD 67 because the Romans controlled the road from Megiddo to Jerusalem. Right? Don't want to be anywhere near Armageddon when uh, <laughs> Armageddon's about to be unleashed. Anyway, there's a account there and the citations there by Cadman in 1962. I don't have that exact uh, by Leo Cadman. I'd like to find that reference. There's another reference, by the way. Um, the drachma is plural, and there is an author who wrote <laughs> a 268-page book on this very episode here. Uh, the sad part is, is he's French, and the 268 pages are all written in French. So I have no desire to learn French just to read that guy's book in any event. All right. Any questions? Thoughts, comments, concerns? Yes, sir? Sounds like it sounded like when they were walking into the town. Uh huh. Well, it may not have been the very instant they walked in the gate because obviously Peter's outside, Jesus is inside. Uh, you know, it's. Possibly, you know, the first couple of days they were in town, the first week they were in town. But yeah, they've been waiting. They've been waiting for him to come back. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
All right, then. Our next episode, one week from today, will be episode 53 in the Galilean ministry, Disciples Contending About Greatness. We will examine Matthew 18, Mark 9, Luke 9. We will examine these passages where the disciples decided to argue amongst themselves as to which one of them was really the greatest of the disciples. And uh, when you start arguing that, you've lost the battle before you even started. All right? And so we have that coming up. It'll be a great, great uh, series of messages. That, that will not be a single Wednesday class in episode 53, I'll tell you that. All right. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word for our time together today. We rejoice in your faithfulness, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.